This episode of the CFO Playbook features an interview between Ross McKay, head of partnerships at Soldo, and Chris Stefani, CFO at DWF. Chris talks about how working in the legal sector provides variety for someone in the finance role. He explains what it's like to lead an organization through an IPO during COVID, the war in Ukraine, and worldwide financial struggles. Chris also discusses the importance of delegation, coaching, and providing leeway and time for teams to process, progress, and be productive. Each week on the CFO Playbook, you'll get insights from world-class financial leaders to help you grow your company, yourself, and face the challenges required of today's CFO. Before we jump into the interview, we want to invite you, our listeners, to head to our show notes to find the link to our listener survey. We want to learn about how to make the CFO playbook even better. As a thank you, you'll have the opportunity to win your choice of an iPad or a Samsung Galaxy Tab S7. We would love your feedback. Chris, thank you for joining us on the podcast today. Uh, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. So, Chris, I'd love to understand uh, like your CFO, uh, DWF, uh, and you have been so for a number of years. But prior to that, you were in advisory in, in a variety of roles, including actually also a, a CFO role. So can you share a little bit about your journey and path towards your current position? Yeah, sure thing. So I, I was very lucky that I, shortly after deciding I wanted to be an accountant, I got a job at EY. And on the first day of that job, I was processing timesheets. I then spent 17 years though, working my way up through the finance function at EY. So I was never client facing. I was always an advisor to the advisors. I was an accountant for the accountants. So I qualified with them. And the way I put it, I stayed there for 17 years because I worked for probably five or six different firms within the firm in that time because there's so much opportunity in such a large, large organization. So when it started to get interesting and I was fully qualified and started to get a bit more senior in finance, I was the FD of the UK tax practice. And then I was asked to go and be the CFO of the Republic of Ireland business unit. And then I came back to deputise for the UK CFO. And then latterly, I was the um, FD of the EMEA advisory business, which is a $3 billion turnover business. So not bad from processing timesheets to um, looking after a, a big beast like that. I decided though, after 17 years, I didn't want to be a lifer at one firm. And whilst I'd moved around and had amazing opportunities, I felt as though I'd developed a specialism, which was performance improvement in professional services. Mm-hmm. I looked out at the law and I could see that they were about 25 years behind and I would probably be able to come into the legal sector and uh, not run out of businesses to help for the rest of my career. So I'm only six and a half years in and actually floated DWF three years ago, which was not something I envisaged doing. So that's definitely kept me interested uh, and at the firm. So that's a whistle-stop tour of how I got to where I got to. So what was it like to be an advisor to the advisors? Because it means that your partners slash customers, the people who are client-facing, they're pretty knowledgeable and they probably know a lot more about the things that need to be done, how to run finance, then, for example, in another, a regular company where the people outside finance really know what's required in order to run that division, run that department effectively? You know, that that is a great question. And it was very challenging. You're, you're up against people who are advising clients on the things that I'm asking the business to respond to. So they were a tough audience. Mm-hmm. I actually think that made for a very high bar from the point of view of me evidencing, here's the business issue. 
here's you know, why it's irrefutable, and here is now what I'm proposing we should do about it. The bar to make sure like you hold up a mirror and it's an irrefutable, actionable piece of advice, it had to be very high. And I think that served me very well. It might even be that, I mean, my team sometimes say to me in the current role, why are we working so hard to demonstrate to the business that this is a real issue? And I said, you thought the accountants were difficult when I was an advisor to the accountants. Lawyers are even worse. They argue for a living. So um, we've got to have a high bar. That was really the discipline that it instilled. I like that because I'd imagine the accountants would be, again, not to stereotype, but naturally very analytical. So be very empirical and data driven. But of course, in your current environment, it would be all about logic and reasoning. Logic and reasoning, and is there a loophole? <laughs> but you're quite right. Uh, you are quite right that all of the people I encountered conform to type. What's interesting, though, is that people assume that actually I was up against a bunch of auditors and people who are very analytical. But in the big four environment, if you go into advisory, you're dealing with strategy consultants. If you go into tax, you're dealing with probably people who've come up through a legal route. So uh, I discovered there were quite a few different animals to deal with at EY which I think has stood me in good stead for a very large law firm with quite a diverse uh, leadership structure where you've, you've got a lot of people to convince. You're still in professional services right now, but obviously in a legal setting versus EY. How would you compare your experiences first as a CFO um, for EY in, in Ireland and now as a CFO for DWF? The job in Ireland was very interesting because the business had been, it was a very good business at its core, but it had been run by an FD who'd been there for, I think, 25 years and had run it in his head. So what I picked up was something, and he'd retired without a handover. So I had to go in and kind of build a finance function and an auditable balance sheet without necessarily having all the records. So that was hugely challenging. We then caught up the finance function with the broader EY network, which was about having processing in India. And so it was a First of all, incomplete books and records, and then it was a restructure the finance team. So very rich experience, all of which took place within two years. Mm-hmm. Contrast that with DWF. I think when I first came to DWF, it was a very similar story. I was, you know, the business had been relatively underinvested. We had lack of process, but very quickly we moved into the IPO process, and now my job is unrecognizable to what it was either in Ireland or even when I joined DWF, because actually one of my main jobs is talking to the market giving guidance to the analysts, making sure our main stakeholders, many of whom are our main investors, understand what's going on in the business, are comfortable and will continue to support us. So the the external facing bit of the job, which doesn't exist for a, for a non-listed CFO, is actually enormously important because it protects our share price, our share price is our acquisition currency. And if we can't acquire, I mean, one of the reasons we IPO'd was in order to support M&A. So we've got to look after um, our currency. That's a fascinating point because you're obviously now, as you said, a huge amount of energy has to go into investor relations. And I'd imagine, especially right now, because the last six or so months have been tumultuous in the markets and tumultuous by going downwards. It's it's not quite the same when it's going upwards, but the volatility has been significant, which of course for CFOs is, is a lot to try and balance up and then predict and forecast for the future. So then how did you learn to like adapt and introduce, I guess, add that strength to your bow, introduce that, given that it's something that you hadn't had to do before? That is an interesting one. I, I kind of learned on the job. I was very lucky that as part of the IPO process, we had some advisors temporarily in the business who'd sort of been there, seen it, 
done it and got the t-shirt and I really had to kind of wring their brains out to try and get as much knowledge in a very short space of time while they were still around. And I think that between that and actually just, yeah, I suppose you've got to think in real time. You Sometimes you have a conversation with people and they use acronyms that you don't understand, but that are bread and butter for a, the listed space. And you have to go and Google it afterwards. I'm not ashamed to say that that is something that I have done because now and again, you go, this is not the environment to ask the really dumb question. But it, there's been a lot about learning on the job, which has made it very challenging, but also very rewarding because there's only so many listed businesses. We are something of a new asset class or certainly in a very unique subsector. There's not actually, when it comes to listed legals, there's not an awful lot of, of precedent to rely on. So it has been a bit of a, a baptism of fire. And then talking about that process then and, and the, the decision to list in a space where you're a pioneer, often the, the markets can be in sometimes like tough, if not brutal, for anything that doesn't have precedent and comparatives and benchmarks and so forth. So, of course, it's important to have those pioneers, but it's also a challenging space and especially for a finance leader. What was that part of the process like and what drove you and the company to list despite being those category leaders? Oh, well, I mean, there's, there's a multifaceted answer to that. I think first and foremost, mm-hmm. when I said I could come to the legal sector and spend the rest of my career in the law, I've had to amend that ambition to say I could spend the rest of my career in a listed legal vehicle because I don't believe in LLPs as a secure business model. It's not a model that allows you to invest. It's not a model that allows distribution of ownership. The traditional equity partner model is is getting more and more outdated And that is on a structure that doesn't allow you to invest. So I think first and foremost, we believe we've got a a structure that's sustainable to accelerate the business, invest in the right areas and make it a better quality, faster growing business. So that was kind of the the reason for listing. We did choose a very difficult path and we are the only, I think this is true, the only main market global listed legal business in the world. So what we achieved was a world first. Our structure chart, we joke, is the most expensive structure chart in the world. The entire IPO cost is 20 million, but the structuring of it was the most important bit because we're in a heavily regulated space. And just to add to all of that, we chose timing whereby we were the one of only two IPOs that got away in Q1 of 2019, such was the state of the market then. Mm-hmm. So it was very, very difficult. We did get a relatively cynical or suspicious response from some potential investors and and some therefore chose not to come in. The flip side is we got an amazing share register of very supportive shareholders who did, uh, I guess, take a risk on us. And and actually, they've stuck with us, despite the fact that post-listing, we didn't have the easiest of times. So we had not even a year post-listing and then COVID happened. We did two profit warnings. The share price went to 46p from an issue price of £1.22. No sooner had we started to recover from that, the second wave of you know, Omicron came and that rattled people. And then um, we had the Ukraine situation, which has led to all sorts of uh, confidence issues and, and increases in energy prices. And then finally, you've got the um, impending anticipated recession. So we've not yet been in the listed space in, in sort of clear, calm waters. And I'm looking forward to at some point uh, operating in that space. Clearly a battlefield general, right? Is not, not, a, not, a pe- not a peacetime general. Definitely not a peacetime leader, albeit it's by not uh, not by choice or design, but just because that's where I find myself. 
Yeah. Can you speak a little bit about that initial period as well? I experienced it from afar when I was at Dropbox is that we went public at Dropbox. And at that time, they held off and they held off for a long time, partly because at that time, the market in the US for tech companies, especially SaaS companies, was quite hostile. There were big question marks around um, valuation and so forth. And then it opened up and the CEO of Dropbox and the founder often used to describe it as a very difficult decision because there's lots of dimensions, but there's a market timing element. It was like trying to re-enter Earth's atmosphere is that you needed to choose exactly the right weather and the right point, not just the right angle and of course where to land. When they were doing so, we went public and it introduced a whole new world of questioning, people trying to understand the business model. Any news article would have effect on the share price, which would then affect maybe some of the chatter in the organization organization or or even employee engagement to a degree. So there's so many more factors to manage there because your reputation is almost, it can be at the whim of the markets, which is a dangerous place to be. And of course, the finance leader alongside the CEO and the rest of the executive team has a huge role in showing leadership in the organization and trying to calm everyone and provide broad shoulders. So how how did you, as again, a CFO, manage that and, and lead through that challenging time? Pre-IPO, we had a sort of head of steam. We'd got the partner group engaged that this was a good thing to do. And so the choice about will we pause and wait for the right re-entry point into the Earth's atmosphere, actually, we're just going to go straight at the planet and just hope. And that's, I think, what we did. Post-IPO, I do think people kind of almost came blinking into the light going, wow, we're listed. Chris, CEO, COO, like, what do we do? What does this mean? So there was definitely a getting used to being in the public domain point, and we didn't have long before things started to get challenging. I think two profit warnings really rocked the business. And bear in mind that is in a time period where everybody's mobilizing to work from home and worried about the pandemic, and it's all very new. I think the key and the thing that we've we've spent an enormous amount of time on has been uh, partner and staff engagement. We've done more town hall meetings, more Q&As, more fireside chats, well, than I've ever done in any business at any time. It has taken, I think, a brute force of effort to over-communicate to the business to say, it's all right, we're going to be fine. I like in my job, not everybody likes this analogy, but I like in my job to being an air hostess on a plane full of people who are quite easily spooked by turbulence. They look to me to be calm, even when the plane's rattling around. Because, I mean, I'm a nervous flyer, and if I look in the, um, the air hostess is panicking, I worry. So however much there might be going on in the background, I've got to present a calm face to the business, take questions, understand sentiment, and also be fixing stuff in the background without making too much noise about it. I think that's what we've had to do in what's been an unprecedented time. It comes down to something as simple as just over-communicate. It's funny that you say that because so many CFOs that we've had as guests on, on the show speak about the importance of communication and over-investing in a way in that communication and especially during those tougher times. So you're absolutely echoing what many others have said as well. I think particularly, well, the word unprecedented is overused, but we've never seen anything like the last few years and making sure everybody's with you and understanding uh, what's going on is key. Also, you've got to remember that the genesis of this business is a partnership A partnership lives or dies by partner confidence. If the partners all up and leave, that's your entire sales force, whether you're listed or not. So stabilizing the partner group was number one priority. Winning hearts and minds and maintaining hearts and minds. 
In that part where you're investing so much in communication, sometimes what we hear, and this is very obviously very individual, but in the role of finance historically is that it is something that you're focused on. It can lead to more analytical people who are much more either like task or numbers orientated, not necessarily the classic extrovert, go out there, energized by others. This is obviously a generalization and a stereotype, but many of our guests have spoken about that being like kind of type one introvert. So when you're going out there and you have to communicate and really invest in showing empathy, and if you are that type of personality, that can be hugely draining and and maybe something you have to adapt to, perhaps not even natural. How did you adapt to that? Was that something that you carried with you anyway? And so it was effortless or did you really have to work at it? Well, I mean, I am highly introvert. There is no doubt that I get my energy from quiet thinking. That said, I started life as a wannabe law graduate and I got a law degree and decided it was too dull and I became an accountant instead. And I think something about three years of writing essays and working out how to communicate gave me some sort of edge when you combine that with accounting. Fundamentally, though, it's not my natural space. I quite like doing it now. I quite like talking to investors, doing presentations, doing Q&A. But at the end of a day doing that, I have to go and lie down. There's no question. I mean, it burns my batteries at a faster rate than a normal day's work. You have to adapt because you cannot be a sort of shy, retiring violet in a role as visible as a listed CFO. It's just, it's not a choice. You have to adapt to let somebody else do it. And I guess that's the point that it is a key part, one of the most important parts of the role, both internally and externally. So you need to adapt and hone that skill if you want to be in that position. I think that's right. But also, regardless of the space or sector you operate in, I think it's an an underinvested skill for accountants to be able to present and articulate a non-technical analysis of what's going on in the business. My favorite phrase for my team is like, step back and squint at it. Don't tell me the decimal point, step back and squint. What is going on commercially? Tell me the story, start with story and then fill the numbers in. And you can see their inner auditors dying when I ask them to do that, but you get such a more, a higher quality narrative and an an actionable insight if you start with story and then check whether the numbers back it up. It is a leap of faith for people who are used to like a double underline on an answer. But if you can get people into that way of thinking, you've got a few far more commercial and far more value add people. So I think everybody needs to sort of set aside that inner introvert, but also set aside the inner auditor as well. I find it fascinating as well, because all of the environment that you spoke about, I'm sure was immensely challenging. You and the team and the executive and finance team were probably burning the midnight oil and you're out there speaking all the time over communicating. So all of that says immense amount of energy that you would have to put in. So how did you achieve some sense of balance or or rejuvenate yourself so that you could get through that? I don't know what the weather was like around where where people are listening from, but in Scotland, we were very lucky that we had this amazing four-month period of great weather. So I bought a couple of kettlebells and one of my friends is a personal trainer. So I had my phone balanced on a chair in the garden with kettlebells doing three times a week a sort of PT session. I truly believe I I would not have got through the intensity of that four-month period in particular uh, without that kind of outlet because we had to refinance the business, secure additional funding, get covenant relaxation, deal with a banking syndicate, angry shareholders. I mean, there was just endless things to deal with 
as well as operate like operationally moving the business to remote working. So mm-hmm. it's probably a cliche, but exercise is definitely a good thing to balance the sort of intense stress of a, of a period like we've uh, come through. The catharsis of exercise, especially something like weight training or where you experience like a lot of uh, pain through endurance. Yeah, unfortunately, I did not maintain it. So the uh, <laughs> I'm not a word of a lie. The kettlebell is a doorstop now. <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine. The one other thing you touched on there as well is that you said that being able to be out there and communicate and invest in partnering, of course, whether the executive team and go out there with with external um, stakeholders as well is important for your role. But presumably, you need to hone some of that in your team as well. And those people that are not just auditors, but that can tell the story, that can squint at it, as you said, is that your belief or your approach in, in squinting at things so you can understand the story before looking at the numbers has developed? Have you changed maybe who you hire and the type of profiles that you look for in your team so that they have that skill or at least have the potential to develop that skill? Yeah, I think we're very careful in our recruitment process to say, look, this is a complicated business. We're newly listed. We're not the finished article. So we explain the very interesting dynamic environment and we test whether or not people are up for that and then we absolutely do test whether or not they are too married to like the exacting answer and the detailed analysis as opposed to the story and 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 more of a of a flow so i definitely think we try to recruit people in that image but you can't always tell from a couple of interviews if somebody's got that in them i do think you can train it in to your team though you can show them how and you can i mean I'm a, I'm a bit of a pain because people will come with analysis and go no 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 just let's draw on a board tell me the story try and force them to tell me the story and i think it's one of the most enjoyable parts of the job and people do tend to enjoy it eventually even though they're like oh i hate doing this i i need my schedule i need my lead schedule it's like no i want a story so you just have to insist i think it reminds me of a phrase that someone said to me. They were speaking about something different, another topic. It was actually sales. And someone asked whether it's more art or science. And he said, well, after much reflection, it's a little bit of both your choices between whether it's an artistic science or a scientific art. And I think you, what you're describing is a little bit of that, is that you need the narrative alongside the analysis. Without a doubt. And I mean, the reason I have confidence that you can train this into people is because I wasn't always the the story guy. In fact, the best piece of feedback I ever got was this was one of those seminal moments where I thought, all right, okay, if I don't listen to that, I'm not going to be as good an operator as I thought I was or would like to be. And it was my old boss, I was with him for five years. We were both heading off to do something different. And he said, oh, I've got one thing to tell you, Chris. He said, uh, every time I talk to you, you melt my brain. It really, really frustrates me because what you do is you download your entire brain every time I ask you a question. And he said, I said, he said to me, you need to stop doing that because it drives people nuts. You've got to remember that a yes or no answer is the best thing you can give somebody. It's more respectful to their agenda because if you allow somebody to ask a yes, no question and then ask another one and drill down to the point they're trying to get to, they will then ask you if they want more detail or give you a chance to fill in the blanks if you've got more analysis. But he said, you've got to let people you know, get to their story or the, the agenda they want to get to. You're not doing that because you're so desperate to show me that you know your stuff. He said, I know you know your stuff, so just give me a yes or no answer. And that's kind of linked to the point about 
you know, don't don't kill people with detail. Start off with the simplest answer and then drill down into the detail if you need to. I was really offended when he did that because I was expecting like a handshake and a bottle of champagne, not a, you melt my brain. But um, I reflected on it for about 24 hours and I thought, ah, oh, yeah, I, I can see exactly what he means now. And ever since then, I thought, right, brevity, yes or no, and story. That's Those are the kind of bedrock of how I think a good finance professional should operate. It's fascinating that you say that because on one level, it sounds like very simple and easily actionable feedback, but on another, it means completely flipping your communication, if not your reasoning from like from inductive or deductive or, or vice versa, depending on which, which direction you get the feedback. And so, because sometimes what I, even I'll find myself doing is that if I'm asked a question, I might not know the answer to say yes or no. And part of the thinking or the reasoning is done externally, you're voicing it rather than actually just saying, you're doing it all internally and saying yes, no. So how did you approach that, the transition of trying to flip that way of thinking? What I did was I, I was sort of explicit about what I was doing because initially I was like, I, I don't know because Dave, this was my boss, he knows what I'm like. So he trusts that I know my stuff. But what about the next person who's a bit new? So I was like, if you ask me a question, I'm going to give you a yes or no answer if I know the answer because I'm assuming you're going to want to drill down into some sort of like line of questioning. If you tell me what the agenda is, I might be able to get you there quicker. And if you want more detail, I'll give you that. So I kind of set out my stall, like this is what I'm doing now, so that mm. I guess people didn't think I was just being like sullen <laughs> and, and churlish. <laughs> uh, I like that. And I'm glad that you didn't bring this approach to the podcast and into this yeah. conversation. <laughs> Otherwise, that would be it would be really bad advice from Dave to you. You've got to adapt to your circumstances. <laughs> <laughs> Good, I'm, I'm glad. I'm glad we got to that. So then, presumably, going back to that point of training your team, again, this is something that we, we see as like a theme of many of the great leaders we've had on, on the podcast is that the importance of coaching and developing and investing in your team to, to get them into the right place, to, to engage them and keep them happy, but also to make them a really high-performing team and productive. So can you talk a little bit about how you invest in the finance team as a CFO? Yeah, I think mainly I try and push the work out as much as possible off my desk and, and let people grab it and run with it. And, and I suppose you've got to let people come back to you with a version one that's not good enough. Um, I think if you brief your team well enough and spend enough time with them up front, you're generally going to get like a serviceable first work product. But I think my favorite thing to do with either my team collectively or individuals is to be around a whiteboard drawing. I always end up drawing in a meeting because I think, well, one, visualizing stuff makes it more real. That's certainly the way my, my brain works. And you're know, giving people enough of a, well, here's what I'm thinking. And it sort of should look like this in my you know, my hypothesis is that, but can you go away and work it out? So you give them enough of a briefing, but then let them go and think. And, and one of the things I say to them is, please protect thinking time. Like, make sure you've got half a day a week or whatever's practical to have no meetings and stay out the window and think. I need you to do that on my behalf. So, you know, again, this is all recycled advice. I didn't come up with any of it, but it's what good bosses and leaders have, have said to me. And I'm just sort of paying it forward by saying to my team, right, this is what I want you to do. Because again, finance people can get very execution focused. So mm -hmm. delegation, coaching, and thinking time, I think are three of the things that I really try and invest in. You don't always get it right. You get busy and you you end up executing yourself and things like that. So it's not a sort of permanent state of being. It doesn't need to be. I don't think business works like that. 
Yeah, but if you always snap back to that as a default, then I think you're doing pretty well. I think that topic of thinking time is a very interesting one as well because it touches on this this phrase that's certainly doing the rounds uh, around deep work and the importance of your day not being filled up with meetings, which I think perhaps as a CFO is very difficult, especially during certain periods because there's so many different plates to spin and people to have conversations with. So I like the idea of mandating your team in a way or asking your team to go and do thinking on your behalf because that's part of what you need them to bring to conversations and to the table because you might not be able to have that. Absolutely right. And people do like it. When you say think on my behalf, you're giving somebody permission to do something and or you're asking them for help. And I find people respond quite well to that. I do. When my CEO or COO says, Chris, I've been wrestling with this issue, but what do you think? You know, you it's a challenge and it's a bit of a privilege as well because you're like, here's somebody that I respect. Hopefully my team respect me, you know. So and I'm going, I need your help. I need you to think about this. I've got this vague idea or I've got no idea. Go and think on my behalf. I think it's really empowering. I love it when that happens to me. I agree. And I think also for anyone who's motivated or even interested in solving problems, it's always nice for someone to say there's this important problem i'm not sure how to tackle it we don't have the answer right now could you figure out an answer it's a little bit like a puzzle and so there's an intrinsic motivation there as well yeah absolutely and it's amazing some of the things that people come back with that you wouldn't have thought of that's the bit that's just really mind-blowing you think wow i could have sketched this out and said go and execute that please and probably that's exactly what i would have got back which might have given me a 20% decent answer when actually there was an 80% answer to the brief that my team thought of and I didn't. So it's another one of those pieces of advice. Somebody at EY said to me, make sure you hire people who occasionally or even regularly make you feel uncomfortable because they're that good. And that is like, again, great advice. Work yourself out of a job. You'll always find the next one if you're good enough. Meanwhile, you've got a team that will make you look good. Like it's a complete falsehood to think I'll protect myself by hiring, you know, okay people. We might all be guilty of it at certain times, even if it's only an impulse, not an action. But is that I think very often the trying to protect yourself or not hire because you might be threatened is obviously driven out of insecurity. Absolutely. I wouldn't specify because it's probably sensitive, but there was a point where somebody sat me down and said, Chris, for this thing we're doing, this group of people aren't good enough and we really like you. But if you don't sort this bit of the, the structure out, we'll need to get another you because it's, it's you're the team. So I've been in a situation where you try and protect people who are really good, very uh, talented people for a certain you know business area, but we're not right for the specific situation. Now, that's really hard when you've got to swap out like a, a large group of people to basically upgrade or to have a skill set that's more appropriate for the work stream in hand. But it's folly to not do it. And that's interesting as well, because you're you're suggesting that if you don't make the change today, then you pay the price tomorrow for that. And I don't mean necessarily in a, a personal way, but also just the project or the initiative not achieving what it needs to achieve, or perhaps even worse, like the kind of disintegration of the team as motivation and engagement falls. Well, you can be loyal to a fault if you're loyal to people and actually don't give them feedback that you need to go out and get a specific skill set and come back at a later date, whatever, you're doing them a disservice. I've never encountered anybody who hasn't ended up better off as a result of even the harshest of feedback. I subscribe to the fact that sometimes 
sometimes it's bruising to be told, actually, this isn't good enough or you need to be better or you should be somewhere else. But the person giving you that feedback is doing you a massive favor. And presumably, though, there's the type of feedback and there are different schools of thought on it, but there's also the tone and the intent. And I think that you can give bruising feedback with either no empathy or bad intent sometimes. And then there's other ways to do it where you give direct feedback, but you maintain integrity and dignity and respect for the other person's dignity. I presume actually that you, when you're approaching it, you would use the latter rather than the former because the former can be corrosive. Simply telling somebody they're rubbish or being vague about the level of competence or performance, I mean, it's just horrible. That is like really insidious. I don't think I've ever mm-hmm. been on the receiving end of that, thankfully. And I, I can't imagine like, distributing feedback in that way. You've got to be doing talking to somebody with a purpose and because you want the best for them ultimately, even if that means that they're not right for your organisation. And Chris, we've been speaking a lot about the team and, and, and about empowering the team and, and creating a space where they can do their best work, but also they can step up where you don't have the space or the time, like the point on thinking. One of the themes that comes up continuously on the podcast and we talk about is the use of technology and the and tools as a way to either support the team, particularly the finance team, I mean, or liberate the team from maybe the timesheets that you were doing many moons ago at the very early point of your career. A lot of that stuff is being automated away through the use of like smart technologies and so forth. So how do you use technology um, within your team in, in particular to support them and improve the way that they work? So interestingly, where we are in our development as an organization, and I think generally where the law is, I think I mentioned earlier, I came into the law because I could recognize that there's a group of businesses here that are probably 20 to 25 years behind the accountants. The accountants realized that they were in the consolidating market, pricing pressure, clients wanting more for less, technological use on the rise, a degree of challenger or disruptor coming in. And the accountants responded by upskilling, investing in and automating their finance functions. The law really is very far behind the accountants in that respect. So we have a desire to implement some automation that I could probably back in the day have programmed myself. We could have had a journey where some relatively low tech automation could make a massive difference. And then if we get really good and sort out some of the processes, because you don't want to lift and shift a poor process that's for yesterday's business into some kind of automation. So it's kind of low tech first a little bit with a desire to get to medium tech and then get out in front. But, you know, people talk about being ahead of the curve. I'd settle to get to the curve. I think that's why the legal sector is quite exciting. There's there's a degree of low-hanging fruit for the businesses that are willing to be open-minded to that. But what's interesting is on the service delivery side of things, law firms are talking a great game about AI, automation, technology, the back office This is just a DWF thing, and we talk openly about the fact that we think we've got loads of improvement to make. I think that is the case at other law firms, if they were being honest with themselves. We see it as a virtue because it means that we've got loads of value to find once we get to some of those kind of even low-tech solutions. And as you said, it's it's fascinating because there's so many improvements, and even the simplest thing can have huge impacts, whereas in other industries, some of those tools, technologies, or as you said, new approaches – might have been implemented a decade ago or two decades ago. And it's all about, when it comes down to it, we have to demonstrate that we've got the ability to either protect margin or improve margins. 
a big part of what we can add in terms of shareholder value and improvement in net profit is about back office optimization. So if I was sat with the kind of current margins that DWF are delivering with a finance department populated by robots, I would be really, really worried. But the fact that we're generating circa 12% PBT margin with really quite a low-tech back office environment, that's just kid in a candy store because we've got so many things that we can automate and make more efficient. Are there any on your wish list, maybe not committed, but are there any particular areas of automation that you would love to target first? It's the obvious stuff. Embarrassingly, it's it's like all of the traditional transaction processing. So billing automation, cash allocation, uh, and client money handling. I'd love to increase the level of automation there because we are a volume business in part. And the volume of transactions that we process is enormous. And a lot of it's very manual. So I'd love to get some automation in place there. And what is going to drive it is what I would call data discipline. And it's People confuse this even internally and talk about data strategy. Now, data strategy to me is capturing client data and using it as an asset to get better outcomes and litigation. Data discipline is about getting matters set up correctly first time such that all the downstream stuff like billing, cash allocation can be automated because the data is clean. And that is that that should be an easy win. So that's the area that I'd love to, to make progress on. Brilliant to hear Chris, as we're drawing the interview to a close, I often like to ask guests, and I would love to ask you to, for anyone that's listening who is working in finance and perhaps would aspire to one day be a CFO, what would they need to be effective when the time comes? You've alluded to some of these points. So, if, of course, if you want to um, reiterate those, fantastic. But are there any things on a checklist that you would recommend to someone who would hope to one day be in a position of CFO like you? I think possibly... I've mentioned a couple of the things already, but I mean, I've actually, I I did make a list because I anticipated you might ask me (laughs) something like this. And I think there are probably five things that are my absolute must always have in mind. Mm -hmm. And one is the step back and squint test. Just reverse out. If you're getting too lost in the detail, reverse out and say, what am I looking at commercially? The second point then is like, start with the commercial story and then solve for the accounting. Do not think about the accounting and then forget what the commercial story is because I don't think I've ever been in a conversation where we haven't got to a better accounting outcome by saying what's really happening commercially here first of all. The third is give a yes or no answer and respect the agenda of the person asking the question and trust that they respect your knowledge so don't download your brain at them. I think I've probably built a career on saying why can't it be better just general question look at anything in the business why can't it be better whether it's business performance growth pricing back office and keep on asking that until you get a satisfactory answer or an improvement plan very simple you'll always find a better answer nothing's ever the finished article and you'll find value there and then finally it's the hire people that make you feel uncomfortable if you do that you'll have a team that make you look good You'll have happy people that will receive the work that you give them gratefully and you'll have a better performing team and business. That's brilliant advice, Chris. Thank you for taking the time to join us on the podcast today. An absolute pleasure. Really enjoyed it. One last thing. We want to learn from you, our listeners, to learn how we can make the CFO playbook even better. Head to our show notes to find a link to our listener survey. As a thank you, you'll have the opportunity to win your choice 
of an iPad or a Samsung Galaxy Tab S7. We would love your feedback. This show is brought to you by Soldo, the brighter way to manage business spending and expenses. With Soldo, you can control every expense, track spend in real time, automate financial reporting, and then use those insights to fuel growth. Learn more at soldo.com.